Well, we're going to talk about um, just using our lives for God's glory this morning. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're delighted you're here. My name is Randy, um, and um, I'm privileged to be the senior minister here at the church. And um, our scripture reading this morning is taken from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. So you turn there, I'm going to get a sip of water, and hopefully I'll be better. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and you'll find that on page 955 in your church Bibles. <clears throat> Just follow along with me. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not much of a carpenter. I mean, if you tell me where to drive the nail, I can do that. If you want to hang drywall, you need a hand, I can help lift it in place. Uh, but don't ask me to take lead on something like that. I'm not much of a carpenter. For one thing, I'm lazy. Um, like, it, <clears throat> if the outlet cover in the kitchen kind of needs to be attached to the kitchen wall. I mean, I've got a screwdriver, but it's all the way down in the basement. And I've got, I mean, it's, it's 32 steps, exhausting, you know? So it's easier, since I'm in the kitchen, to just open the drawer where the knives are and just use one of the butter knives, you, you know? And... Um, and maybe that's why none of you are going to want to come over to my house anymore. And so, but there you go. And, but, I mean, and, you know, butter knives aren't exactly, well, let's just say they get the job done. And, and, and just, you just don't want to use that butter knife after the job is done. And, 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 and sometimes blades on those things have been known to break. And, 
I know the risk of hurting myself, but it's my butter knife. It's my butter knife. And, and I'll do with that butter knife what I want to do. And there it is. I am sovereign over the butter knife. So says King Randy in his kingdom of one. Right? Where am I going with this? Well, you know, today's scripture deals with the human body. And strangely enough, sometimes we use the same doctrine over the kitchen butter knife as we do with our bodies. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, the Apostle Paul is challenging us to think. Think critically, think carefully, think Christianly about this question concerning your body. And it's, it's a simple question. Who has rights over your body? Who is sovereign over your body? Who has the final say over your body? How relevant of a question this is in our culture today. It's a question that was relevant 2,000 years ago in first century Corinth. It's a question very relevant today. And so I'd like for us to think about this. What does Scripture say about this question? Who has rights over our physical bodies? And what Paul does in these verses is a masterpiece. The Apostle Paul presents us with two perspectives, two doctrines, uh, two sources of wisdom on the body. He appropriately and fairly explains the wisdom of Corinth, the doctrine of Corinth, which was the prevailing cultural perspective of the day. It's what everybody believed as far as the average Corinthian was concerned 2,000 years ago. The wisdom of Corinth. And then he explains the wisdom of Christ. Wisdom from Corinth, wisdom from Christ. Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. Wisdom of the world, wisdom from heaven. And then he just puts them up side by side and says, let's just do a comparative analysis between the two. And, and what I want us to see in these verses is, is how Paul presents the wisdom of Corinth, how he responds to it. So he tells us what the wisdom of Corinth is, and then he responds to it fairly, with courtesy, and then he brilliantly argues for the wisdom of Christ. And it's on the foundation of the wisdom of Christ that Paul challenges us about our bodies. So this is kind of where the flow of this passage is. Paul identifying the wisdom of Corinth, Paul responding to this wisdom, and then Paul arguing for the wisdom of Christ. That's the flow of this passage. I think to help us really grasp uh, the wisdom of Corinth, the wisdom of that day, um, we really need to get acquainted with the ancient city of Corinth. So let's just do that. Now, Corinth was in, is in what is now, um, and then, Greece. And it's uh, right in the middle, you see Athens, and then just uh, uh, to the left of Athens, a little south and a little west would be Corinth. 
Uh, it's near a very thin strip of land, a sort of a land bridge that connects uh, the mainland Greece from this other section of land called the Peloponnesus. And uh, Corinth was right there uh, at the neck, right there at that little strip of land. Uh, you can see it in the next picture. Uh, there's the strip of land, as I spoke of earlier, and there are the two major bodies of water uh, that uh, surround the Peloponnesus. And Corinth is right there at uh, the neck. And that made it a very strategically uh, advantageous city. Uh, you know, it's location, 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 right? Well, so there's two harbors, east and west. Uh, there's a road that connects the mainland from the Peloponnese uh, north and south. So you've got toll roads uh, and toll for the harbors back and forth. We're talking cash cow for that part of the world. Taxes, tolls, commerce. It was, it was a very, very wealthy city. Um, above uh, the city of Corinth, let's take a look at the next slide. Um, uh, so that is the temple of Apollo, uh, uh, what it remains of Apollo, the temple of Apollo. And then to the left, you can see this huge, you know, um, um, kind of like a skull of a mountain that kind of emerges from the ground. That's about 2,000 feet high, mind you, there on the left. It's called the Acrocorinth. The Acrocorinth. Next slide uh, is a better picture of it. Uh, it's a, a fascinating uh, piece of geography. Um, and there was a temple up on top of that Acrocorinth, 2,000 feet up. It was called the, the Temple of Aphrodite. A thousand temple prostitutes uh, were there, and then each night they would descend upon the city to, uh, to sell themselves. Uh, that's kind of the way the city was. And so you've got this uh, busy, bustling city. Um, you've got this temple, many temples there in Corinth. Corinth was a gem in the Greek Empire, and uh, in 146 BC, the Roman Empire destroyed it, practically leveled the city. Uh, and the legions either enslaved or killed uh, the inhabitants. And for a hundred years, Corinth was like a ghost town. Nothing happened. And then in the year 44 uh, BC, Julius Caesar, just before his assassination, ordered the city to be rebuilt. Uh, he wanted to populate that part of the world, and he gave military veterans uh, chunks of land uh, for them to start new and to create wealth. And so these veterans were, you know, too old to be in the military, but they were still had a lot of their life left, and, and they had uh, a lot of drive. And so uh, these veterans came and, and colonized that part of the empire. And so uh, they worked their way up the social ladder. They created wealth. It was a busy, diverse, commercial, urban city. There were Greeks. There were Romans. There were other immigrants, including Hebrews. Uh, there were uh, uh, merchants. There were sailors there. Uh, Corinth kind of became a magnet for the status hungry. Um, but it was a tough town in that it was so competitive, you know, really just, you just had to have a lot of a nerve to make it in that town. Uh, one geographer put it this way, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. In other words, this is a tough town. It's tough. 
Uh, another uh, philosopher put it this way, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. So while they were climbing up the social ladder, while they were uh, making their money, they're, they're soon in the history of Corinth began to be a, a divide between the, the wealthiest and then the poorest. And it was very stark contrast. It was in the midst of this context that the Apostle Paul came to Corinth around the year A.D. 51. So the city has been rebuilt for about 100 years now, and Paul came to a city that was geographically Greek but culturally Roman. And wealth and power were vested in the few, and to influence the wealthy, uh, you had to perfect the art of, well, Americans call it schmoozing. Uh, Corinth prized public honor and saving face, and money was a means of building one's reputation and personal glory. Now, church, you cannot overestimate how strong this competitive, individualistic, status-hungry, cultural dome that was over Corinth. You can't overestimate how that was when Paul brought the gospel to this uh, urban center. It It was the largest city Uh, that Paul had ever been to uh, up to that point in his uh, missionary career. Uh, It was a a large city, well, well, well over 100,000, and some estimate even a quarter of a million. The wisdom of Corinth reflected in the lifestyle of social elites caused people to jockey for power and prestige and popularity, and, and the wisdom of Corinth played havoc on Paul's attempt to build a Christ-centered community. I mean, imagine trying to plant a thriving, selfless, spiritual community of Christ followers in a city whose values include a ruthlessness and competitive individualism. And yet, that's exactly what happened. The gospel penetrated that culture. Acts chapter 18, 8 through 10 says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And Paul was just, you understand, you got to understand where Paul was when he came to this, this town. His wounds were still healing from the merciless beating that he received in Philippi. And by Paul's own words, he says he came to the Corinthians. He came weak and trembling. To think that the mighty apostle Paul would be intimidated and scared at the thought of sharing the gospel once again because he just was kind of afraid. Here's what's coming once again. I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm just going to, I am just going to get the pudding beat out of me. I don't want to do this anymore. But he did and people came to the Lord and in fact, Acts 18, 9 and 10 say, Jesus appeared to Paul, said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So so here this city of competitive individualism was met with the gospel of truth and selfless love. What a place. But the Corinthians, they were rescued, brought from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, but they were still spiritual babies. 
they were still spiritually immature. They were still affected by their culture, influenced by their culture. In fact, one, uh, one scholar puts it this way. The problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's in this context that we see 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And the question, who has rights over my body? Who has rights over my body? And the wisdom of Corinth spoke arrogantly, brashly, and loudly on this question. I do. It's my body. It's my body. It's my choice. It's for whatever I want it to be. It's mine. Wisdom of Corinth. That's what's behind verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Note that phrase in your Bible. That's in quotes. Meaning, that's the words of the Corinthian, not Paul. Okay? So Paul's simply responding to this quote that belongs to them. And by the way, much of 1 Corinthians is Paul responding to questions or quotations posed by the Corinthian church. That's, uh, we see this uh, several times. We'll see that in verse 13. We see that in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the, man, the, the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, Paul didn't say that. They said that, and Paul's responding to that. So that will help us. Much of 1 Corinthians is Paul uh, responding to that. And often you see the phrase, now concerning matters you wrote. Now concerning matters you wrote. Well, that helps us understand that Paul's responding to their concerns and their quotes. And this one in verse 12 is, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. It shows up in, uh, uh, twice in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. It shows up again in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Apparently, that was a very popular uh, quote uh, that the Corinthians believed. All things are lawful. Paul, uh, you said I'm free in Christ. I'm free from the curse of the law. All things are lawful. So if it's pleasurable and it has to do with my body, why not? If it makes me feel happy, why not? If it's therapeutic, why not? All things are lawful. Furthermore, Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And some scholars, uh, you know, bicker about whether that phrase, and God will destroy both one and the other, is a part of what the Corinthians said or if Paul's responding to that, I don't know. But the point is that Paul was, uh, was responding to the Corinthians who believed that, you know, Sexual relations, it's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If I get hungry, I eat. And if I get hungry for sex, I seek satisfaction. And then I just go on with life. It's physiology. It's an appetite. It's impersonal. And you add to this a Roman culture which tolerated the idea that marriage... In Roman culture, marriage, it was tolerated that marriage was for procreation. Marriage was for children. Why else would a Roman marry, okay? Mistresses and prostitution, that's what was for pleasure, okay? And so that's really where they're coming from. 
It's called the doctrine of self-sovereignty. The doctrine of self-sovereignty. The doctrine of my body, my choice. The doctrine that asserts that one's body, you know, the body ought to have whatever it wants and that our bodies have greater meaning from our free choices. Whether it's the choice to eat, the choice to drink, the choice to dress, the choice to express oneself sexually, including the choice to self-select expressions of gender. 2,000 years ago, in Corinth, people believed that they had the right to choose whatever truth they wanted about their body, whatever they wanted sexually, or their gender preference, and no one had the right to question them because it was theirs. All things are lawful. Now, I don't know about Corinth, but I do know this in the United States. The doctrine of self-sovereignty has led to a radical, militant sexuality. Whereby what was once condemned is now celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it too, you're condemned. Just recently, the departments of justice and education uh, in our government put together a joint letter to public schools across the United States. And the big idea is basically this sentence here I'll share with you, which is that a school may not require transgender students to use facilities inconsistent with their gender identity or to use individual user facilities when other students are not required to do so. Uh, the letter does not contain the force of law. That said, uh, the Department of Education may take the prerogative of withholding federal funds from schools who choose not to abide by this letter. But I want, I want you to just use the mind that God gave you to think, think critically. Let's think, let's think critically with our minds here for just a moment. So, uh, so according to this letter, according to this thinking, chromosomes and biology should not determine the sex, gender, and bathroom assignment of a person. Rather, according to this, each person is to lean upon his or her own understanding to make the determination. So people can now decide to be whatever they sense they really are. I'm confused by this. I'm confused by this. For one thing, you know, when it, when it comes just to sexual expression, we have heard for many years now that, it's, that homosexuality is biologically determined, even though there's been no direct genetic link ever established between homosexualism uh, and genetics. So, so is biological determinism now thrown out the window with this letter? I mean, do we plan to say the same thing about homosexuality? Do we plan to say the same thing that this letter asserts about alcohol and drug abuse? Do we plan to say the same thing about bipolar disorder and major depression? In other words, 
Or do we just plan to use biological determinism only when it's convenient? Do we just make stuff up so that we can do whatever we want to do? And do we want our children to be the experimental guinea pigs while we figure out these questions? Is it possible that our culture's mantra of do not judge has caught up with us and led us to the place where we can receive no instruction, even if it would rescue us from destruction of our own lives and the lives of our families? At the end of the day, is the doctrine of the sovereign self, which existed in both Corinth and it exists in America today, isn't that really our God? John Richards um, uh, writes for a wonderful website called uh, the Reformed African American Network. Listen to what he writes. As an African American jurist trained at Howard University's School of Law, I am keenly aware of the civil rights issues raised here. My concern is our culture's appropriation of the African American struggle for civil rights in America. You can't copy a narrative of pain and death filled with water hoses, attack dogs, and ropes, and then just paste it onto a narrative of self-identification. Medgar Evers didn't need to self-identify as an African-American. He was an African-American, and he lost his life for that reason alone. Do you see... Just thinking critically, thinking logically, thinking rationally about this. And I haven't even looked at how Paul responds. I haven't even looked at the scripture. But since it's open, why don't we? Paul responds, and he does so brilliantly. All things are lawful for me. You know what? Paul gives that to him. Paul says, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. All things are lawful. And then he says this, but not all things are helpful. So you're, you're asking the wrong question. All things are lawful. Paul says, ah, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Paul says, Christian freedom, it, you're, you're thinking like a Roman. You're thinking like an American. You need to think like a, 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 a Christian. And Christian freedom is the freedom not to be free. The freedom to serve toward the benefit of others. The freedom to use your body for the benefit of others. The freedom to restrain your freedom for the sake of the gospel. Paul says that people who feel compelled to express their freedom are actually in bondage to the need to show that they're free. Paul says, look, you know, if, if I am constantly concerned about my rights, how can I be genuinely free to respond to what the Lord wants me to do? Is there a better perspective than the doctrine of Corinth, the wisdom of Corinth, wisdom from below. Paul says, yes, it's the wisdom of Christ. Paul reminds these believers 
then and now of their identity, their reality in Christ. He says several times in this paragraph, do you not know? And he ascends higher than any Acrocorinth could ever uh, ascend. And he offers these believers a sweeping vision of their reality. Listen, God always starts with your identity before he moves to behavior. God always starts with, here is who you are, and he saturates us with identity so that, well, yeah, it just makes sense. This is what he wants us to do. And so here's what he says in these verses. Paul says to the Corinthians, first of all, your identity is that of a resurrected body. Your identity is that of a beautiful bride. And your identity is that of a sacred temple. Resurrected body, beautiful bride, sacred temple. That's your identity. Your body is destined to be a resurrected body. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So your body does matter to God. And your body is the image of God. God formed Adam out of the dust and, and breathed into his body the breath of life. And he became a living person and alive to represent his creator and alive to exercise dominion over the earth, alive to rule, but sin corrupted that and our bodies. And so the image that we are to reflect has been dulled by sin. Sin dulls the image of God in us. But Christ came to rescue us from this. And one day by his power, the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, the God who raised his son from the dead will raise your body too. And, and the restoration of your body will be part of a, a cosmic fixer-upper project that will encompass all of creation. So your body just isn't something to be sloughed off like it doesn't matter. Your destiny is not to the tune of that old gospel hymn, I'll fly away. Remember that hymn? I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. That's classical music where I'm from. Um, our destiny, our destiny rather is a resurrected body on a resurrected earth serving the resurrected Christ with dignity and nobility and zeal and without the presence of sin. Church, that's your story. That's our story. And that's not all. Because just as Paul just allows us to just enjoy the beauty of the resurrected body, he moves on to another image, telling us that our bodies have been betrothed to Christ. That's what's behind verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's marriage. Verse 16, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Oh, it's been a weekend of weddings here at uh, Windsor Road. Our own uh, uh, Connor uh, Bunting, our student ministries director, and our, our uh, uh, um, worship coordinator, Emily Cooper, were married yesterday. Katie officiated that uh, out at uh, Allerton. And, and then I was uh, on the east side of town uh, at, uh, at a farm uh, uh, 
just being a part of a lovely wedding at uh, Hudson Farms with uh, Cameron and Madison from our church. And, and, and then, just a few hours before that, uh, I participated in a, uh, a renewal vow from um, our, our last two charter members here at Windsor Road. They, they were here back in 73 when the church started. Jim and Nancy Horman, uh, 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 we celebrated their 50th anniversary. And so, yeah, it was just a beautiful, beautiful day. And uh, uh, Saturday, as you know, was just glorious. Uh, but that's marriage. It's the beauty of it, the joy of it. Verse 16, the two will become one flesh. Now, that's not, that's not from Corinth. That's from Genesis 2.24. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. It's an image of marriage. And so, uh, and, and throughout the New Testament, we see the body as the bride of Christ. It shows up here. It shows up in Revelation 22. It shows up in Ephesians 5. It shows up in 2 Corinthians 11. It's a picture meant to convey how deeply Christ loves us and cares for us and is committed to us. And our groom has never regretted saving us, ever. And, and our union to him is even deeper than the union of those who have married here in, in this body. That's what's behind Paul's words in verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's an even deeper union, you see. So sexual intimacy is not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, Paul says. There's a spiritual and emotional and mystical union that takes place in the act of sex. And, and so prostitutes aren't welcome at weddings. And the union of a Christian with a prostitute is disastrous for the Christian community. And not just for the individual, but for the community because, it, because of the bonding that that creates. And the result is confusion and defilement. And so, and that's not who you are, Paul says. You're the bride of Christ. You're, you're, you, you, have, you have a resurrected body in promise. You are the bride of Christ now. And... You are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Paul concludes this section. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? He's not just talking about the congregation. He's talking about individually. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to you and for you. Now think about it. You're in Christ and then the Holy Spirit is in you. So I'm telling you, your body is surrounded by God, indwelled by God. God is before you, behind you, over you, under you, in you, through you. That's why Paul would say in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. Oh, believer, Paul says, your body is to be resurrected. Your body is betrothed. Your body is a sacred temple. Now then, based on that, flee sexual immorality, Paul says, and glorify God with your body. Don't you see? See, the, the, he doesn't need to say much in terms of actual command once he 
unfolds the beauty and splendor of, of who they are in Christ. And notice that Paul does not say, now flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body so that God might give you his spirit. That's not what he says. He says the Holy Spirit already dwells in you. You are betrothed. God will one day raise your body. Now based on that truth, act this way. So you see, identity always comes first and then instruction. Here's who you are, and now here is how God wants you to live. Your body matters. You're not your own. The, 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 the wisdom of Corinth says, my body belongs to me. The wisdom of Christ says, my body belong, your body belongs to Christ. The wisdom of Corinth says, my body is meant for my benefit. The wisdom of Christ says, your body is meant for the benefit of others. Your body is meant for the glory of God. And the reason why it is for others is because Christ is for you. And Christ came in a body. Your salvation did not come by some wispy, spirity type of Savior who kind of just kind of floated around. No, no, no. The mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body, and that body was crucified for you, and that body was raised for you. The Lord is for the body. Paul says in verse 13, and God raised his son as the first of all that will one day be renewed. And when that gospel came to Corinth, it changed lives. It transformed self-sovereign residents of a godless world into humble Christ followers. I know this because of what verses 9 through 11 say in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says this in verse 11, and such were some of you. I think those are the six sweetest words in the Bible. And such were some of you. Huh? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. Listen, listen. <laughs> if you think that the members of Windsor Road Christian Church grew up in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you got another thing coming. Okay, who are we? <laughs> we are 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. That's who we are. And your pastor too. <laughs> and whatever problems there are in the Corinthian church and in our church, whatever personal failures or corporate worldliness, in Christ, believers have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the Trinity. The whole weight of the Holy Trinity lies behind the conviction of who we are in Christ. Because when you stand before God, the righteous judge, listen, when you stand before God, the righteous judge, you will either get 0% or 100%. No, nobody stands before God and gets a B-. minus. You don't. 
I mean, it's either 0% or 100%. Well, how do I get 100%? Jesus did that for you. Man, I mean, these Corinthians, we mess up in countless ways, but in, but in Christ Jesus, we are guiltless, guiltless. Paul front loads that in 1 Corinthians 1.8 when he says the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end guiltless in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he lived for them. He died for them. He rose from the dead for them. He ascended for them. He prayed for them. And the same is true for us. Don't you, don't you hear what good news this is? Your sins are not held against you. Though they be as scarlet, God who justifies the ungodly has declared you clean. And so ultimately, you're not your problems and you're not your weaknesses and you're not your past and you're not your sins in God's eyes because of Christ. By grace through faith, you are recipients of his abundant, forgiving grace. His amazing grace. And we call it amazing grace not pending grace. Amazing grace. It's Christ's work who saves us, not ours. It's Christ's work that secures us, not ours. It's Christ's work who earns for us what we could never earn for ourselves, not us. Oh, church. Jesus bought your body with his so glorify him with it. Amen.